So Holy Spirit, ask that you would give us understanding of your word, that we could live by it better. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. Good to see all of you. Thank you all for being here on a sunny day. Do you ever worry when you get sunny days in like spring that we only have so many sunny days and it's going to work like borrowing from summer? Does, <laughs> anyone ever, no, just me? Okay, well, anyway. I remember when I was in graduate school, uh, once going to this very arty French film, because there's no other kind of French film, and there was this one scene that just went on and on for like minutes and minutes, and all it was was, was milk dissolving in a cup of coffee. No action, no music, just minutes of screen time with this milk dissolving in this coffee. And I'm sitting there going, oh, come on, you got, and cut, you know, but it just kept going and going until it moved into some other kind of meaningless scene that made no sense. And I, you know, I was used to movies like Die Hard, things like that, so I was bored out of my mind, but I was with my fellow English lit graduate students, so of course I had to pretend that I liked it, right? And Oh, yes, it clearly symbolizes the soul's quest to be free, and yet encountering a certain je ne sais quoi that leads inexorably to the lacunae of despair. <laughs> right, guys? Right? Just that I can make that sentence up is actually kind of frightening. <laughs> meanwhile, I'm like, meanwhile, I'm thinking in my head, oh, Lord, have mercy, could we please have a car chase scene? You know, or could something at least blow up? When we were uh, there, my wife always wanted to open a coffee shop, and she wanted to call it Café Pretentieuse. And that film would show nonstop in that pretentious cafe. Do you ever feel like you are caught in an arty French film where one scene just goes to the other and they don't seem to make any sense and they don't seem to be connected, just one darn thing after another? In family, in career, or maybe especially during hard times, do you find yourself asking, Lord, where are you in this? What are you doing in this? Is this adding up to anything meaningful? Like, what are you doing? Where are you? Well, for the next few weeks, we're going to be going through the, the book of Exodus, looking at the life of Moses, and we'll be looking at it through the lens of story, because our lives are really like stories. Our lives, they have reoccurring themes, conflict, narrative, comedy, tragedy, and one of the things I think God says to us is, I want you to live a good story. Go live a great story, so that when the credits roll, you'll be able to say, that was awesome. And when we're able to look at our life as story, find the reoccurring themes in our lives and understand the narrative we live by and all of that, it helps us make decisions about little things like day-to-day -day stuff about how we do our job and family and stuff like that. I'll give you an example in a minute. But mostly when we're able to read our lives as a story, it helps us see God at work behind the scenes and it helps us experience him more, even when we can't see it in the moment. Your life is not just one darn thing after the other. There, are, there is an unseen author writing your life. There are reoccurring themes. And when you find that, you get closer to God, and it can guide you through life better. I've shared with you before about my first day as a graduate student, and I was at a welcome party, and the first person I talked to at that party started going on and on and on about some film, also French. And I, when I told him that I'd never seen it, he like, there was this visible and condescending sneer. You're like, oh, you haven't seen it, you know? And I'm like, well, whatever, right? Arrogant dude, right? And he's just like, he kind of goes on and on about my ignorance, so I bowed out gracefully and retreated to the buffet table, feeling very unsophisticated and very Eastern Washington and all of that. And I was reaching for a piece of broccoli when there was this beautiful, witty Chinese woman right there. So I married her three years later. But now in that moment, right, now in that moment when I reached for that broccoli, I was not thinking, wow, turning point, my life has just changed. No, I, you know, I, was just, I just thought I needed fiber. 
But God was the unseen author. He was writing something. It was a turning point. When we can see God at work in the seemingly random twists and turns of our lives, it gives us confidence. And you see that in the book of Exodus, which in the beginning just looks like a random string of events. But on closer analysis, God is the unseen author behind it all. And it opens, the Jews have been uh, slaves in Egypt for about 400 years. Um, that, that Pharaoh is very worried that they're going to you know, multiply and start an insurrection. So plan A was to put them in slavery, but they just kept multiplying. And so then he comes up with a new plan, plan B. The text says, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, and that's going to be significant in a minute, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. So they started in slavery, and they progressed to genocide. And I'm sure the Jews were thinking, where is God in this? This is just seeing random, meaningless suffering, one horrible thing after the other. It's not adding up to anything. Where's God? God, in fact, seems very silent at the beginning of Exodus. He's only mentioned twice in two chapters and that in passing. But on closer analysis, you see that he's actually behind the scenes. He's actually doing something. And through all the plot twists, we can see that God is writing one consistent story whose theme is liberation. You know, it's interesting that, that Pharaoh in this text is not given a name, but the Hebrew midwives are named, right? I mean, they would have been the lowest of the low. They were slaves, they were women in a culture that didn't value women, and yet they get named while the king of Egypt, the most powerful empire of the day, goes unnamed showing that Pharaoh is not the author of this story. He thinks he is, but there is another author behind the scenes. And so the midwives, they get this order from Pharaoh, and the midwives refuse to kill the boy babies. And when Pharaoh asks them why they refuse, they get in kind of this little dig at the Egyptians, one of my favorite verses. They say to Pharaoh, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. <laughs> yep, I mean, just like, you know, greased pigs, man. They just slip right out of there and boom, we're ready to go. Right? I just love that, you know, it's not like you Egyptian women, you know, frail, pasty little things. See, Pharaoh's order, the, the thing that meant to destroy the Israelites, actually leads to greater cultural solidarity and civil, civil disobedience. It backfires. So then Pharaoh comes up with plan C, and he orders that all the baby boys be thrown into the Nile. And you probably know the story. Moses' mother, when he's a baby, puts him in a basket, floats him down the river. Pharaoh's daughter discovers him and raises him in Pharaoh's house. So Pharaoh is forced to raise and pay for the education of the future liberator of the people that Pharaoh's trying to oppress. That's called a plot twist. Then Pharaoh's daughter goes to Moses' mother and employs Moses' mother as a nurse. So Moses' mother gets paid to raise her own kid. Wouldn't that be a great gig, right? <laughs> and this is a key turning point because Moses would have been taken care of by his mother for about the first six years of his life, which would have given him a, a Hebrew identity, which he would need in order to set his people free from slavery. But then he would have gone to be raised in Pharaoh's house where he would have been given the best education he could get. He, could get. he would have been given leadership training, learned Egyptian, which he would also need to liberate his people. He needs both. And here's another kind of ironic plot twist in the story. So let me ask it this way. Did Moses' mother disobey Pharaoh's order? No. She actually obeyed it to the letter of the law. Pharaoh said to throw the babies into the Nile, and that's just what Moses' mother did. Right? Pharaoh didn't say how to throw the babies into the Nile. 
There was no fine print about no baskets, right? She just does the thing he says to do, but it backfires again. Everything Pharaoh does to oppress the Jews backfires and leads to their liberation. And the text says the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. It's only because Pharaoh tried to kill the boys that the future liberator was equipped to set his people free. If he hadn't done that, Moses wouldn't have been equipped. The command that was meant to bring death brought life. But the twists and turns aren't over because Moses grows up, and when he grows up, he screws up royally. He sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and in solidarity with his people, Moses kills the Egyptian. And here you see the first, uh, first hints of, a, of, the, of one of the themes that emerges in Moses' life. And that is to set his people free, to defend his people against the Egyptians. This is going to be one of the themes of Moses' life, and you see it here. He just does it in a really lousy way. Well, Pharaoh finds out about it, puts a a death sentence on Moses. Moses flees to Midian, which is in kind of modern-day Saudi Arabia, and there he will stay for 40 years. God basically puts him in a 40-year timeout. And he's, he's not a leader anymore. He's probably sitting there. All he's got is sagebrush and de- de- you know, wilderness. His life is a wreck, and he's probably thinking, for this I was raised in Pharaoh's palace. All of that preparation for this. You ever get to places like that? Midian places? My whole life for this? What's this about? Where's God in this? How is this going to add up to anything good? That's Midian. But in Midian, God does three really important things in Moses' life. First thing is Moses learns humility, which is an essential quality for any leader to have. I mean, after all, Moses was kind of raised in Pharaoh's house, probably kind of thought he was all that and, you know, a little bit more, probably thought he could get away with murder. Well, did think he could get away with murder, literally, right? Kind of arrogant. But the 40-year timeout humbled Moses, which every leader needs. Now, here's the thing about humility, though, right? Sometimes the only way to be, have humility is to be humbled, And that's what Moses experiences here. Then the second thing that happens in Midian is Moses' theme comes up yet again. So when he first gets to Midian, he's sitting by a well, and seven sisters come to draw water uh, for their father's flocks. And in the movies, if you've seen any of the Exodus movies, this scene is always done the same. It's always this little kind of gaggle of giggling girls that come to this well. I have no idea why they do it that way, because they're actually fairly serious people. And then the text says, "Some uh, some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to the rescue and watered the flock. So there it is again, this reoccurring theme, defend the defenseless, liberate the oppressed. It keeps coming up in Moses' life. Now, I got a question for you. Do you think at this point in Moses' life he was saying to himself, what I got going on here is a reoccurring motif, right? (laughs) Which is good. I've always wanted me a reoccurring motif, and here I got a reoccurring motif. Of course he's not thinking that. He can't see that happening yet. So is it possible that There are reoccurring themes that God is trying to write in your life. Your life is not just one darn thing after the other. You just can't see it yet. As I shared with you a few weeks ago, for years, I thought I wanted to be a professor. That was my dream, be a professor. But then I started to notice that I was always that instructor that had the extra long office hours. I was always asking students about their lives rather than about Shakespeare or their papers. And it took me years to figure this out because I'm very dense. But I noticed that no matter what situation I was in, teacher, friend, I mean, for heaven's sakes, even when I was a waiter, you know, I'd be like, here's your salad, ma'am. Now, how is your life? Right? I mean, there was just this, this theme that kept coming up in me. I wanted to help people find God in the middle of their lives. That's one of the themes of my life. It took me years to figure it out. 
right? But, and I can do that in any career. And when I saw that theme, it changed even the daily decisions of how I did my office hours, how I graded their papers, all kinds of things. Seeing our life story and discovering the themes that keep emerging can help us make everyday daily decisions as well as big ones like career and things like that. It can help you decide how to discipline your kids if you understand the themes of your life, that what the story God is trying to write. It can help you figure out how to deal with your coworkers, what career to take, what career not to take, a whole host of things. Moses' theme was liberate his people. Your theme might be something different. What are some of the themes in your life? And then the third thing Moses got in Midian was he worked as a shepherd, which taught him the terrain of that particular part of the, of, the, of the world, which he was going to need to know in order to lead his people through that exact same wilderness to freedom. So the thing that looked like a detour, Midian, became the highway to liberation. And here's the good news in all of this. Okay, the good news in all of this is it means you can't really screw up your life. Now, some of you are probably like, oh, Dudley, trust me. You know, I so can. Yes, we can. You know, so wasn't that Obama's theme, right? Yes, we can screw up our life. That wasn't a political comment. It was just, you know, an aside. <laughs> no, you can't. No, you can't. As long as you are trying to follow Jesus, you don't even have to do it perfectly. As long as you are just trying to follow Jesus, you cannot permanently, irrevocably screw up your life. You may screw up a chapter or two, but you cannot screw up the story that God is writing with your life unless you walk away from Jesus completely. I mean, look at all the awful things that happened in Exodus. But all those twists and turns that were meant to oppress, God used them to liberate his people. Even the way Moses messes up, God uses even that. Okay, he doesn't cause those things. God doesn't cause those things, but he used them. He knows the story he wants to write with your life, and he will be sure to get you there if you keep following him. Now, this does not mean, this does not mean that God's plan for our life is some kind of deterministic deal, right? Because sometimes we think, oh, God's got this plan for my life, and it's really specific, and, and, and you know, unless I <clears throat> try really hard, I'm going to miss God's plan for my life, right? As though God were up there think, saying, I'm thinking of a number between one and infinity. Guess what it is? Right? That's not how God works with us. Our lives are more like jazz, where every note is not written out. Maybe you have a chord chart or a few notes here or there. You're trying to play a, a jazz tune like Am I Blue, and you know you need to hit certain notes at certain points. But how you get between those notes, that all can be improvised. Right? And the piano player may pick up on a certain riff, and, and then the bass player and everyone else joins in, and then the bass player changes the tempo or something, and everyone else joins in. It's improvised. I think that's how God works with our lives. Pharaoh oppresses the people. God says, oh, let me improvise. Midwives, boom, that'll take care of it. Right? I screw up my life, and God goes, okay, I can improvise. Let me work with that. I'll improvise. I screw it up again. God says, wow, second time this week. Okay, boys, change keys. We're improvising on Dudley's life. And he is such the master musician that he can still make the concert what it needs to be. Pastor Tim Keller tells a story of how in seminary he, he didn't know what kind of church he wanted to go into, and then a new teacher came and started taught two courses that convinced Keller to start a new church rather than go into an existing church. And the church he started in New York became a very nationally influential church because of that teacher. And then Keller asked, well, why did that teacher come to teach the course in the first place? And Keller says, well, because Mike Ford, President Ford's son, was at the seminary at the time and could get this teacher a visa because he was having a hard time immigrating from England. 
Well, how did Mike Ford have the clout to get the visa? Well, his father was President Ford. Well, why was his father President? Because of Watergate, and Nixon resigned. Well, why was there Watergate? Because one of the burglars left the door open. Keller says, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for that open door. Watergate was just for me. <laughs> See, God doesn't cause it all, but he works through it all. You know, it's like one of those children's songs, you know, where everything is connected, you know, the nest on the branch and the branch on the tree and the tree in the ground and all of that, right? The door to Watergate, Watergate to Ford, Ford to the teacher, the teacher to Keller, Keller to the sermon, and the green grass grew all around, all around, right? <laughs> we all have these positive and negative turns in our story, and each one drives the plot forward. And sometimes we see it in the moment, you know, but other times we don't see it. We don't see what God's doing, like the broccoli moment for me. So here's your homework. And I got this from a book called Storyline by Donald Miller. Here's your homework. I want you to this week draw out a timeline of your life. Write the positive turns in your life above the line, the negative ones below the line, and then ask Jesus, where were you in each of these? How did you use these turns? What themes start to emerge as you look at your life? For Moses, it was liberate my people. For, 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 for other people, the theme might be God was with me or God uses me to love others or whatever. Mine is help people find God in the midst of their life. And when you understand the themes in your life, it helps you live into the story that God is trying to write through your life. It helps you make big decisions, as I said, like career or little decisions like, for, in my case, how I did my office hours and graded their papers or how you treat your coworkers or whatever. So if I were to do mine, just as an example, I could, there could be lots of turning points that I would put on mine, but just a couple just by way of example. So I started to talk very, very early, born to preach, right? There was a sort of indicator right there. And then, you know, years later, I got a divorce. That's a negative turn. God did not want that to happen. It was a very painful and difficult thing. I would suggest avoiding that particular turn. But then years later, I began to see how God was using it for good. I got closer to him. He taught me more compassion. Right then I went to graduate school and, and I had my little broccoli moment where I met my wife. And, but I also there got frustrated at the false stereotypes of Jesus which, which were created kind of by our culture and that birthed in me a passion to change Jesus' reputation in our culture which eventually led me here. So this week, I mean, draw out a timeline of your life. Think of some of the positive, the negative turns. Where was God in those? What are themes that start to emerge? And even if you have a lot of negative turns, you've done a lot of screwing up in your past. You could not have screwed up more than Moses, okay? That's what's great about the Bible. They're the, they're the biggest screw-ups ever in history that makes us feel better. And, and, then, and, and, and then ask Jesus to show you how he can use those things for good as he did with Moses. And if you look back and you see there's kind of a lot of hurt people in your wake, well, view that as an invitation to go say, I'm sorry, and to make amends. Now, some of you may say, Scott, I'm not good at this. this is, I mean, you're a literature guy, so of course this makes sense to you, but you know, like, I write code, right? I, this, this, that's why we need the Holy Spirit, because I believe this is something all of us can do. Ask the Holy Spirit as you do this to show you where he was. How was he working through these turning points. Ask other people. Show them your life. Say, hey, what are, you, what are themes that you see emerging out of my life? Do that for them as well so that you can discover the story that God is trying to write through you so that you can participate in that storyline, in the daily decisions you make and the big ones you make. Because God is always with you and me. That's, that's part of what the first two chapters of Exodus are about. Even when you don't see it, even when it seems like he's absent, God with us always. In fact, Moses' story kind of points to another story that we're familiar with. 
right? A king decides that all the male infants need to be killed, but, but, but he grows up to set his people free anyway. He's rejected by his own people, but he goes to the wilderness where he's anointed by power. He's put under a death sentence, but his, that very sentence leads to the liberation of his people. That should sound somewhat familiar. It's Jesus, born when King Herod was killing all the baby boys. He goes to the wilderness is tempted, is tempted, but is anointed with power. The cross, the death sentence that meant to bring Jesus death brought us life by purchasing our forgiveness from sin. And the cross is the moment where God seemed utterly absent. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it is the moment where he was most present of all, saving and redeeming the world. Jesus is God with us always, even when we can't see him. Hang on to him through prayer, through scripture, through sermons, listening for those thoughts that aren't your thoughts, and see the themes, the story he's trying to write with your life. And then one more thing. you got to give it time. Because it can take time to figure this stuff out. It can take time to reflect on this. It can take time. It took Moses 40 years. And it just needs to take time. And then the other reason it takes time is we can be kind of dense, can't we? I know I can be kind of dense, right? but God will keep working with you. It's sort of like a couple I heard about on vacation driving through Florida, and they came to a town spelled K-I-S-S-I-M-E, and they started to argue over how to pronounce it. Was it Kissimmee? Is it Kissimmee? What was it? So they stopped to get some lunch, and the husband said to the waitress, hey, by the way, how do you pronounce the place that we're in? Waitress leaned forward, and she said, Denny's. Sometimes we can be a little dense, a little slow on the uptake. That's all right. Jesus will keep enunciating for us until we finally pick it up. I got an email from a woman who I've mentioned before. I'll call her Rachel, who cares for her grown daughter with special needs as well as two other women with special needs. Very stressful uh, kind of uh, life for her. Well, last summer she went on a walk and passed by a house with just this one small yard and very green grass, and Rachel was impressed with how that whole yard could be watered with just one sprinkler. No need to move it and all of that, just simple. And so Rachel asked God to show her how she could live with that kind of simplicity. Well, a little, a little later she attended a workshop on resiliency to, to help people with special needs be more resilient. And she said that the things that were mentioned in that workshop happened to correspond with many of the things we were talking about last fall in our sermon series on exile. Looking forward, not back, being present in the moment, stuff like that. And the graphics they were using in that, in that workshop were similar to the graphics we were using here. So she's sort of starting to see this reoccurring theme thing, right? And the graphics was a cracked, dry ground with just one single plant coming up through one of the fissures in the ground. So this is what she wrote in her email. She said, I came to realize that the goal I'd set for my life was to get out of exile. But the reality is I'll probably never make it to the promised land this side of the River Jordan. By the time I figured out my daughter's long-term care needs and have passed the torch to someone else, I'll likely be facing my own health issues, which will continue my exile. And that's okay. God has called me to a ministry in exile, to exiles. God has called me to thrive in that exile, to be resilient. And she went on and she said, letting go of my need to make it to the promised land has been very freeing for me. I no longer measure my day by how much progress I make toward having happy circumstances. Instead, I have found joy and peace in the middle of it all, which sounds so cliche and it's so hard to describe to someone who hasn't experienced it. The best way I can put it is I have found my one plot of lawn that is able to be watered by one sprinkler. She said, it's like that plant growing up from the dry caked ground. 
The plant is obviously not receiving its nourishment from its surroundings, but it must have a long taproot that's drawing its life from something deep below the surface. And that source is God. And as the drought deepens, the plant's roots would have to grow even deeper in order to be sustained. And the plant's function is to use energy that it gets from the ground and from the sun to convert carbon dioxide, a pollutant, into oxygen, a life-giving substance. That's what we're called to do. Draw nourishment from God through our roots in him to convert that which pollutes into something life-giving. And the places that need this the most are the places where the ground is the driest. In short, the places of exile, and that's where I'm called. She read her life like a book, like a story, looked at some of the turning points, even the littlest things like graphics and a green lawn, and saw God's hand at work in the struggles, in the Midian places of her life, and saw themes emerging of drawing on God to help people in exile. And that theme can help guide her in everyday decisions about how she cares for her daughter and a whole host of things. So what are the twists and turns of your life? And how has God been behind the scenes all along writing his story through you? And what themes emerge? And how can you live into those themes, the story that God's writing through you in the daily decisions of your life? In Hebrew, the first word in the book of Exodus is the word and. Never gets translated that way because it'd be a little weird. But the first word is and. And the point is, this is one continuous story from the previous book of Genesis. That is, God is always writing, always at work, even when we can't see him, writing history, his story, with your story and my story. And the book of Exodus starts with the Israelites groaning under their slavery in Egypt. But the book of Exodus ends with the glory of God descending on the tabernacle. It starts with groaning, and it ends in glory. And the freedom starts with a very quiet God, working behind the scenes with some very ordinary people, to break the bondage of 400 years of slavery. And if God can do that with a baby and a few midwives, well, then what can he do in your life and in my life so that when the credits roll, your life will not have been an arty French film with meaningless scenes one after the other. But you'll be able to say, truly from your heart, what a great story, what a ride. So Jesus, help us to live the story you're trying to write through each of us. Help us to see in the twists and turns of our lives, your unseen hand, guiding, leading, redeeming, restoring, making all things new. Help us to see the themes that you are writing through our lives and live into those themes so that we can live the story you created us to live. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.